0: Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, poet Anne Kennedy reads Alan Kernow's The Loop in Lone Kauri Road and poems from her own award-winning collection, The Darling North. Nga mihi nui ki a koutou katoa. Hello and uh, well, warm welcome to uh, you all. Um, thank you to Going West for inviting me here this evening. Um, I'm really honoured to be part of what's become an iconic literary festival in Auckland. Um, so congratulations to Murray and Naomi for these 19 years and counting. Um, <clears throat> so we're all hoping that it's going to go on for many years to come. So I'm especially honoured to be uh, giving the Curnow reading um, in memory of the late Alan Kurno and Jenny Curnow tonight. Um, I'm going to read one of my favourite um, and a much-loved Curnow poem. Um, but first I thought I'd just say a few words about um, what Curnow's work has meant to me as a reader and a writer and take the opportunity. Um, a poet cannot do without a country wrote Curno in his 1963 essay, Distraction and Definition, in which he sets out what we think of now as a manifesto for the nationalist movement of New Zealand writers um, and artists. And In this essay um, and elsewhere, Kuno grapples with the particularity of place that he saw as defining New Zealand writers, Pākehā writers, I would add, Land, distance, context. So what, what's implied in this polemic, a poet cannot do without a country, uh, is that in literature there are different kinds of countries. The past is a foreign country. The imagination is some other country. And Cuno embodies these countries, place, history, the imagination in his poetry. So I think it's worth remembering that Curnow lived uh, not just in a complicated place, but through very complex times. Two world wars, the 60s cultural upheaval, second wave of feminism, which was often a thorn in his side. Um, So as the son of a pastor and a journalist himself in the early days, um, it was perhaps a combination of mindfulness and... Worldliness that drove him to position himself so on, on land, of history, in imagination. This is such a, a, a breadth of being. Uh, when I first arrived in Auckland in the mid 80s, um, it wasn't fashionable to subscribe to Alan Kurnow. Um, there was a debate raging that some of you probably remember about old and new language. Um, And that debate has become famous now, about um, fast lanes and slow lanes with bright young things speeding ahead, um, and Curno stoutly bringing up the rear in or as a 1957 Chrysler. Um, But with the passage of time, that argument, although an important stamping out of territory, um, appears to change focus in a number of ways. Uh, but importantly, that the then young, fast lane poets were in fact standing on the shoulders of Kuno in terms of their country, their location, their reading of history, um, and their imaginative space. Curnow had even modelled uh, debate because he'd once been part of the young stamping generation. So now for me, when I, I look back harder... I regard Curnow as having dispensed with lanes, um, with having occupied a kind of white male center. Uh, And to this day, I think new writers in this country owe much to Curnow and to the nationalist movement that positioned itself in a center of its own making. I think that's the crucial thing about this, of its own making. So on that note, I'm going to read a very beautiful Curnow poem. It's a late poem. Late Kerner poem, and it urges us to look harder at um, at the land around us, and perhaps in the end to forget all the stuff about context because we've already done it. It's also a poem that firmly goes west, and it's the Loop and Lone Cody Road. It's the last poem in this beautiful AUP book. By the same road to the same sea, in the same two minds to run the last mile blind or save it for later. These are not alternatives. So difficult to concentrate, a powerful breath to blow the sea back, and a powerful hand to haul it in without overbalancing, scolded for inattention, depending on the wind. I know a remo from a by the leaf knot, coarsely serrate, observant of the road roping seaward in the rainforest. A studied performance, the way I direct my eyes, position my head, look interested. Fine crystal, the man said. You can tell by the weight, the color, the texture. The dog steadies, places a healthy turd on the exact spot. We like it in the sun. It keeps our backs warm. The water tables dribble down the raw red cutting. The road binds. Injured natures are perfect in themselves. We liked it at the movies when they nuked the city and suspended our disbelief in doomsday, helping out the movie. New York State jogs past me ribcage under the t-shirt stacked with software, heart muscle programmed for the once round trip. Crosses my mind by the bridge at the bottom, the road over which, and the stream underneath are thoughts quickly dismissed as we double back, pacing ourselves. Concentrate, the hawk lifts off heavily with an awful of silence forget that, and how the helicopter clapper clawed the sea, fire bucketing the forest, the nested flame. So the trouble with reading a Kernow poem is that he's a hard act to follow. So I'm going to read two excerpts from The Darling North. Um, When you write mostly narrative poems like me, you need to um, read by the yard or meter so I'll have to give you a little bit of background on each measure of poem. The first um, uh, excerpt I'm going to read is from the um, Darling North, the long poem that is the title poem of this collection. Um, and in this poem, the protagonist uh, has lost land and lost love and lost history, and she goes north in search of these things with some friends who happen to be book reps for publishers um, to confront her demons and to confront history. Um, and there are two texts quoted in in this in my text that you might recognise, some of Seamus Heaney's North and a couple of snippets from Fred, Frederick Manning's Old New Zealand. Northness. 1 AM in my bedroom, a bright light like phosphorus radiates under the balcony doors. The North wants to come in. But I, with my new friends, my new hate, my new Northness, am going to it. I step past the humming of bees onto the high lacy veranda. I wear my nightdress, a South dress, snowy and windy, it flutters at all angles, is melted by the north. Across the dissenting heads of the pines, the harbour turns over in its sleep. I think it is sleeping. I see its dream, its wrinkling. I am bathed in blueness, and the harbour is leached of blue. There's an ache just here, a siren in my lungs, high-pitched so you can't hear it. But in the distance, a dog whines. Down on the lawn, among the swings and slides, dark shadows like legs flee somewhere. I hear laughing downstairs, happiness. I am facing the grade Hokianga and the delicate fact that Manning did not exist, at least not in the way I had imagined. The retreating tide has taken its power and left stones, wood, shoes. No treaty, I foresee, will salve completely your tracked and stretch-marked body. That's Heaney. I put my coat on over my nightdress and navigate the trembling upper veranda Its nervous, Cody. planks penned like wild horses under my feet, and I bounce down the foaming, moonlit steps to the garden where a cat scallops and a hedgehog snuffles obliquely into flax. Moonlight floods on and off a tap when cloud allows or the wind allows. Periodically, the land leaps up at me, whiteness and the wide, semi-tropical leaves, like emissaries, resined with recent rain, helmeted. And I snort, my heart relentless like the water cycle. Northness has overcome me. I am warm as I walk over it, finding paths in the sprays of grass, in the low, desperate bushes, in the tough, busy bacteria of the soil. In the dark, I see shots, blades, edges, and they guide me. And among the foliage, in the air, under the echoing mauve shell of the sky that cups over the harbour, I plot my course, like a whale listening to its own springy coordinates. I am acquiring the knowledge. All night, it seems, I walk in the disused landscape. At one point, it rains again, and I am drenched Slippery, as if newborn. I'm not, of course. I am recycled, derivative. My long immigrant upper lip, my blue postal worker eyes, white skin caught occasionally in the moonlight, face flipped open like a passport. My ID stares out. Here I am, like Manning, who I think of with a jolt at this moment in the untidy night time. I have hearness. They had nothing, that lot, the forebears, them again, but dash dot, air, whiteness, ships passing, the mouth of the harbour with a sack of flour, the sugar settled their teeth. They never complained, from the sit-still photographs, but made do, made bodies, the northness made them do it, The warmth, the lushness, the wild fertility is what they came south for. The night bruises. Under my feet, the tidal flat gurgles an invisible city. Worm farms. I look down, mother ground, sour with the blood of her faithful. I scuff back to the house in my coat. The land is slabs of meat, blocks of butter, angled for the taking. I could reach down. In the meantime, the nighttime, the sky ticks, the steps gleam, the house creaks. I sleep, listening to bees. On and off the next day, I shave trees, shading my eyes with my visor hand as I scan scan the horizon. Some burnt stumps surprise me in a field. I delve into the mud, hoping to find bright yellow fists of glassiness. There are none, all gone, all glue. I read in the big front room. They have everything, Barbara, Izzy, Ian, all the books. I read while the harbor watches me, wars, uprisings, skirmishes, quashed, undone, done. What am I to do with it? A painting, entrance of the Iokianga River, by Augustus Earl, is squirts of milk light smeared, coaxed, hovering even over the canvas, painted under some influence. My feet, when I walk out again, are six inches above clay. I plant the north in history books. They go crazy in the unaccustomed warmth. I can hardly understand how it is that I have not yet landed. That's Manning. At 8 o'clock on Sunday, the party goes from room to room, closing windows, although there is no one to come in. Everyone has orange hair in the end and a bright frown from the low sun. I watch my love being sucked up from the harbor, from the land, then falling again quite gently. One day, says Barbara, We will drive up to the northernmost point and look out at the two seas. I lock the rumbling sash in the room with bees. The milk curtains go still, but the tirade of water through the warped glass billows back into the inlet. The bees continue with their deliberations. I am north, in the south. I get so confused, I feel just as if I was two different persons at the same time. That's Manning. From now on, in conversations about the north, I will describe the harbour I saw, its wild silence. In convoy, the party drives back south, Barbara and Izzy, Ian, Sarah, me, etc. A song in my black car floats on the darkening air. I turn on the headlights at Wellsford, baubles going south. The hills rock. The motorway roars, birds fly out from neon signs, European trade beads flung into the sky. In Auckland, under the imported lemon lamppost, Barbara and Izzy load up their cars for Monday morning. They will drive books in every direction, but it will all be in the south. Monday evening, I will be in the flimsy reading room. The phone will ring and I will answer its daylight. I have buried my history, my lost love, in the tidal flat. One day I will drive up or down to the northernmost point and look up and out and back at the north. I'm going to finish with um, a section from a poem called Hello Kitty Goodbye Piccadilly, which is a poem about moving um, something to, common to a lot of New Zealanders. We're a very mobile population. So about moving um, and about dying to a former way of life and going to a certain kind of paradise. Imagine you'd come to Hawaii early. I don't have Hawaii. Imagine you were in heaven. I don't have heaven. Imagine you were in paradise and on arrival... You remember what you had been told about paradise at the little old cold school. In paradise you will sit for a long time looking at everything as if for the first time and you will understand. You realise that you like the sing-song of Pigeon, an exhibition of empty rooms with carved wooden weeds growing out of the skirting boards, a variety of friendliness kimchi, mandu, spicy ahimaki, manapua buns, handbags. You think you see a sign saying Occidental rugs, but you're mistaken. Your eyesight, which you thought would be fixed in paradise. It is dazzling, and you are dazzled. The sea, you walk about, you drive about, learning the avenues of paradise. In the Chinese cemetery on the hill, the names of the immigrants under the colonies of Lichen, look out over the bunched handful of city, mini Hong Kong. You wonder in passing about your body, its whereabouts. Eventually in paradise, you discover a shopping mall. This development is a long time coming, because before you came to paradise, you bought meat, Brussels sprouts, rough socks. In the shopping mall, goldfish swim in blue ponds and perfume coils out of stores to engulf you. And the song composed by the queen when she was incarcerated in the palace, Aloha Oi, deposits its snippets in the warm air. You stop at certain shops and you learn them and you like them for their sound and their smell. And their meaning gathers like clouds which, when heavy, fall onto the car park and gather again. And again you process along the upper level of the mall and warm air bathes your feet and you incline your head towards price tags and you fall in love with a cat face and stroke a purse in its likeness to have and to hold. Imagine you are in paradise and in paradise a funny expression sometimes pops out of your mouth And your children laugh because nobody says that here. And here you need to add that for your children, this is not paradise because for them it is only childhood. You realize with a jolt that your children's DNA does not contain the expressions your parents used, that you use. And if they took a sample of tissue from your children, they would not be able to prove relationship through work cut out, mind you time being. You try to remember the theme music to the news you watched before Paradise, the trumpet's important like yeoman, but it falls through your fingers, which doesn't matter because it was always going to become unimportant anyway. In Paradise, you try to remember a tune your father used to sing while shaving, I dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair, but it is lost. You find that in order to remember, it's a long way to Tipperary. You need seagulls to be cawing overhead, bells to be ringing out the Angelus, your breath to be white on the air as you run down the passage to your parents' room, school uniform bundled in your arms. You need to be doing up the rubber buttons on your woolen vest while the gas fire snorts. In paradise, you walk down McCarthy Mall, between the acacia trees and their geisha sprinklers. And you swing your briefcase because you have a job in a place and you think Western capitalism meets Eastern cat and discard it immediately because thoughts are like that. And this is paradise. Warmth rises through your body and you realize that you are cool and the balconies of apartment blocks downtown look like box seat for the Pacific Ocean and for the sun king, and you want to wave from one, your fan, your beauty spot, and that the creaky wooden villa with light coming through the floorboards that you had lived in on earth has fallen away, and you smile at the thought of the bright new friends you've made, the school you went to topples into the cold gully below it, and magpies rise, oodle until they are full stop, and the extinct varieties of Hawaii fill your bookshelves. A cat you knew once, who slept in your bed on cold nights with its face poking out, becomes mythical, but you were always going to outlive it anyway. And a cousin on your mother's side falls away, but she was always elusive. There is no brother but a digital camera No aunt, but a pair of shoes. There are no grandparents, but a hair straightener. And they were always going. There is no coat, but you were always going to lose it. There is no cold wind, but it was always going to be forgotten because of the nature of cold and of wind. When you travel on the bus, you are a little chilly in the air conditioning. And you listen to the voice announcing each stop in well-articulated Hawaiian. You know whose voice it is, and you feel like turning to the old Japanese woman next to you and saying, I've met that man. You know people in paradise. You remember the voice from all the previous occasions of going on the bus, of which there are many now because you have been quite a long time in paradise, and the voice is familiar and comforting. And when you get off the bus, warmth rises through your body, and it rises through your body, and it rises... Through your body, and you see and you feel that you had to go sometime and that this is paradise. Thank you, everyone. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers Festival. Thanks for listening.